Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 10th, 2017, and we are up to episode 2039 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, not exactly the most exciting day in the week for most people, and most of us had a short week last week, and somehow coming off a short week into a Monday of a full week makes the week seem longer. I'm here to do what I can today, to entertain, to educate, and to inform, to make the week go a little better if you listen to me during your commute or while you work or something like that. Today's show, of course, being Monday, is a listener feedback show, and I have a long list of topics today. I'm going to try to try to make star... Try to start try right try to start making these Monday shows and on some levels the Thursday shows for callback uh, call-in shows have a little bit more material in them take a little less time per segment and uh, here's what I've got to you for today uh, the truth about pending healthcare legislation an article someone sent me and I'm not even going to le- read the article I'll give you the gist of it and I'll tell you what I really believe is going on. Uh, I have a frank conversation, uh, vicariously, I guess you would say, from a law enforcement officer on double standards. It's quite eye-opening. And no, I'm not going to go into a jack rant over it, but it is going to make a point. Uh, I have a question on using Coinbase as a website owner to accept payments in Bitcoin. I have reuse of yeast when making beers, mead, ciders, etc. I have a, a question. Are centralized power companies in a death spiral due to innovations in solar and, more importantly, batteries? I'll tell you why. You know, maybe, sort of, kind of, not really, yeah, maybe. Okay? Will be my answer on that. Uh, why I'm not a huge fan of many commercial long-term food storage products, with a question on a specific one, and I have nothing negative to say about them as a business. It's just I want you to think about what you're doing with your long-term food storage Really, really think. Uh, a question on gas masks. Should we all have a survival gas mask? Uh, gas mask. Boy, I'm having a rough one today because it's a Monday, I guess. A great way to be called a jerk and have it make your day. Seriously, I'll, I'll read it to you. It'll make sense when you hear it. The job loss automation paradox. What is that? If robots take the jobs, who buys the stuff? A little thought on that. Turning a large poly water tank into an aquaculture system, and by that I mean the kind that you buy at like Tractor Supply that generally used for rain catch, like the 2,500-gallon big tall black ones. Um, should you sell a domain name? If somebody wants to buy your domain name, you bought a domain name one day, maybe you're going to do something. If somebody wants to give you a couple grand for it, what do you do? I'm going to tell you why I think you should say, show me the money uh, in most instances. Would I feed my fish from tilapia to native species? And could the death of retail spaces... Benefit creative entrepreneurs. All that more in just a bit. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year 22. I have one segment today from David Verne. Of course, this is the year, uh, the year that was, I guess we call it now, since it's no longer correlated to the episode. This is the year 22 AD. Here's what it went on. Imperat Im Imperator. Tiberius has decided to award Blasius not only triumphal decorations, but also gives him the title Imperator, victorious general. The Senate begins questioning Tiberius as to why the Ninth Hispania Legion remains in Africa if the Romans are victorious over the rebel Tacfarnius. Facing political pressure, Tiberius orders the new governor of Africa, Dolabella, to send the Ninth back. Dolabella can't refuse the emperor and sends them back even though Tecfarnius is still at large. My take by David Verne. Imperator is the root word for emperor, and was given as a title to a victorious general by the Senate or his men. When Augustus became the first emperor, emperor he, had a little, he had the title of princep, first citizen. It took some time before the term emperor was used by the Romans themselves, but it became more common than when the soldiers would hail their general as Imperator or their choice for emperor. Okay, it, what, what I pick up on there is the initial title for emperor was first citizen. Hmm. Seems like a big difference between first citizen and emperor, doesn't it? I'm just, I mean, doesn't it? Now, this Tacfarnius cat, I, I don't really know this period of history. I'm learning a lot in these little segments because it's just not my thing. I, I was never big on early Roman history. But here's my guess for Tacfarnius. When these guys leave, he's going to come back and start screwing around again. And I have a feeling that in the next five-ish years, somewhere in there, Tacfarnius is going to get crushed like a grape. Like, there's going to be a point where this guy's just too much of a pain in the ass, And you got to get serious about it, and the guy's got to go. Because, as I've said in these other segments where we've talked about this Tacfarnius cat, is this is one of those leaders. This is one of those leaders who can continue to, to get away with things, to do things, to, to bring back an army. They can wipe out like his whole army, and he comes back with a new army in a year or two. Why? Because he's going into all these tribesmen in northern Africa and just picking people up, going, hey, you want to go out and tear some shit up and see what we can do. And they're, oh, yeah, because he's got that charisma. And he knows how to organize forces. And sooner or later, when you have an enemy like that, they got to go. And i got to think, after what I've learned up to this point, is he might be pretty clever, but when it comes down to it, when they really, really want this guy dead, he's going to end up dead. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. And with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show. My uh, first one comes from a guy, and he, this is on a website called the Conservative Treehouse. 
Here's what Josh, who sent this to me, says. Jack, this is the best piece I've ever seen on why our government is not working for the people, but for the corporations. This is from a very pro-Trump guy, but man, it's an indictment on the whole effing scheme like I can't even begin to fathom. Hard to see how Trump can succeed, actually. Okay. I'm going to put the Trump stump aside because I'm not a Trump supporter, nor a insane Trump basher. I do not suffer from the disease, TARD, which is Trump Anger Resistance Disorder. That's 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 came out right after the election that these people had TARD. And I think that it's actually gotten worse. I think the condition known as TARD has, has become recurrent extreme Trump Anger Resistance Disorder, or retard. Okay, And I think that's a, a real disease of the left, and that's fine. And you don't have to like Trump to not be completely idiotic over everything that the guy does. But I'm going to take Trump out of this because the point of this article, if you read it, is that the reason you can't get anywhere with health care right now is that there's a whole bunch of money involved through lobbyists that all want their little piece of how this new law gets shaped out. And basically your politicians are nothing but mouthpieces for the corporations or the hidden hand. He calls it the big club. I imagine he took that from George Carlin's big club that you're not in, the one they used to beat you over the head with. Um... Yeah, if you if you need more convincing that that's how this works, if you if you if you want to see some Venn diagrams that show you people in government and in private sector and moving back and forth and the overlap and the interference and how the whole thing works, you can read the article. But I, I think most people that listen to this show and have listened for any length of time, especially you old timers that were around back, let's say in the first three years when I talked more about politics than I do now, you this is no surprise to you. You know this. So I want to talk about what I what I think is really going on. First, if you if you don't understand how lobbyists control things, read this article. I think the most important thing, the most important thing in this article that most Americans do not know is your congressmen and your senators, your representatives and your senators, because they're all congressmen, but your reps and your senators, do not write legislation and laws. That at least 99% of the laws, the bills, the things that are introduced were not drafted by the senators and the House of Representative members that vote on it. They don't write them. They don't even pay somebody to write them. They don't even like have like this this team of like legal eagles that they say this is kind of what we want it to be and draft it with all the legal considerations and point. No, they don't do that shit at all. So you have to ask yourself who actually writes the the laws, who writes the bill, who drafts these bills, and the answer is the corporations of America draft the bills, and then they give them to lobbyists who try to find a a rep or a senator to get them introduced or appended as a writer or what have you. And as soon as you know that, then anything that seems reasonable that should get done that doesn't get done, well, you know exactly why it doesn't get done. And I th and the reason I went through that right there is I think there's an incredible amount of fact and truth in that in relation to the health care bill. I think there is tons of lobbyist money floating around right now trying to get everybody's little piece of the pie just like there was for Obamacare, except the Republicans are a bit more divided on who to sell out to. Okay, But I'll tell you the real reason. Because this is not hard. We have heard for months now, well, this is difficult because how do you take health care away from people and blah, blah. Here's the deal. All of you people 
that screamed and yelled and worked so hard and campaigned on others' behalves and waited for this moment for the Republicans to have the House and the Senate and the presidency to get rid of Obamacare. Do you know what you said when Obamacare first came to the floor? You said very simply, very simply, very effing simply one thing, vote no. You didn't say make it better. You didn't say, we have to do something. You didn't say, oh my God, if we don't do something, the world's going to end. You said, don't do it. So much so that so many people called into their representatives and their senators that they shut down the Capitol phone system. It jammed up and broke, and they passed it anyway. So what is the solution to this unreconcilable problem? 100% repeal. But what about all the people? That, you mean all the people who are getting their health insurance for $35 a month because they're stealing my money to pay for it? They don't get health insurance for $35 a month anymore because you can't. You repeal it, and then if you actually want to solve the problem, you figure out all the reasons that health care, not insurance, health care. See, they're going to take health care away. The government has done a fantastic job in collusion with these lobbyists and corporations of convincing the dumbass American people of one freaking thing that's absolutely not true. Health insurance is not health care. I want you, if you don't understand that, I want you to number one. That's what I want you to do. This is the only way you're going to, if you think health insurance is health care, The only way that this is going to get through your head is to go remedial with training like we did with kids in freaking third grade 25 years ago when there was such a thing as discipline in a school. You need to find your ass a blackboard or in the modern age maybe a whiteboard. Don't use a computer. It's too easy to type or cheat and go cut and paste. And you need to write 100 times, health insurance is not health care. Health insurance is not health care. Health insurance is like Bart Simpson on the freaking chalkboard. Because they're not the same thing. Okay? No one says, well, if, if you don't have automotive insurance, then you are denied automotive service. Right? It, it, unless somebody provides you cheap car insurance or a cheap car warranty, you're being denied service on your car. You're being denied maintenance on your car. You're being denied repair on your car. Insurance is to, to help you afford the cost of unforeseen difficulties in any given situation, in this case, health care. So the problem in the health care world has absolutely effing nothing at all to do with insurance other than the fact that insurance exists has inflated the cost of care. Insurance, in many instances, is the problem. You want to solve this shit? Here's a simple bill. could be written on one sheet of paper. You simply pass this as a law. If you want to go the law route, from now on, insurance companies must pay the same rate for all services, drugs, and fees, and all other, uh, all other expenses within the medical industry as individuals. Do that. Do that and watch the price of health care just drop like a rock. But see, health insurance companies, Jack, they have to negotiate discounts. They're not negotiating discounts. They're getting the actual price by forcing the providers to inflate the cost of the guy that pays out of pocket gets his ass raped. 
You go to the, you go to the, 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 the hospital because you broke an arm, they fix your arm and they rape your ass with a cheese grater. That's what's going on in America today. That's the problem. Now, where does this all come back, though, to the Republicans? You've got to get it through your thick, not wanting to understand heads. And by now, all of you who doubted me for the last 10 years should have the chickens coming home to roost, that little empty spot in your head. The Republicans want the government to run health care, too. Not the Republican mommy with the flag that was waving it last week at the parade. The Republican politicians want the government to take over health care, too. They just don't know how to sell it to their base. Do you get it? Do you get it yet? Because if the Republicans did not want the government running health care, they wouldn't debate how much they should cut these programs. They would eliminate them all. There's absolutely nothing that prevents them from doing it right now. They'll get voted out of office. Most of them wouldn't. Most of them would not. The, the, you know, the people that are yelling and screaming at them when they go home for their vacation for the eighth time this year or whatever it is, those people didn't vote for them in the freaking first place. Now, you want to see them get out of, voted out of office when they sit on their hands and don't do anything? I said a long time ago, before Obamacare passed, the following... This was be, it was going to be passed. It was being done to destroy the modern health insurance industry, what was left of it, because it was already overpriced and stupid. And it would result in, eight years from then, a Republican strongman winning the election in 2016, which it did. You, can, you cannot find me a better example of a strongman coming out of left field for the Republicans like Donald Trump. You can't find a better one. And it would be that strongman, who would end up actually taking the steps to put us into a single-payer, government-run health care system. Which, by the way, those of you who go, Trump is going to save America, make America great again, my Trump! Right, okay, he's totally on board with a giant, massive, incredibly expensive government-run health system. It's going to be great, it's going to be great. The best health insurance you've ever had, it's going to cover everything, you're going to be so happy, you're going to love it. We're going to make health insurance great again, right? I mean, this is basically the guy who said it his campaign. So how can that happen? Hmm, let's see. Let's see. What happens if the Democrats take back the House and Senate in the midterms? It's a stretch right now. But if these idiots can't figure out something and successfully sell it to the idiots that put them in office, okay, they are going to get slaughtered. And that's why the Democrats are literally sitting on their hands right now, and their new proposed campaign slogan is, Vote Democrat, because have you seen the other guys? That's a real thing. That's not fake news. And the reason they can do that right now is they know that the Republicans have promised so much that the backlash, if they do nothing, will be extreme. Now, what happens... If you get all the lobbyists and all the money and blah, 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 all funded through the Democrat funnel, and you have a Republican president like Donald Trump, who, by the way, I don't even really think cares if he gets reelected, and the Democrats come to him and say, here's single payer. And you wondered how he'd get that done. That's one way. That's one way. But it doesn't even matter because in the end, the end result will eventually be what the people that write the laws 
want it to be. And the people that write the laws are not the people. They are not the congressmen. They are not the senators. They are not. They are the corporations that run America. And I know a lot of you think, well, they wouldn't want single-payer. Oh, a lot of them would. Big labor would want single-payer. That would be fantastic for them. The pharmaceutical company would love single-payer. They guaranteed sales. But they'll negotiate lower rates. Really, you think? You think like the $1,400 hammers they buy? They'll negotiate. I mean, come on. Come on. But this is, we're watching Obamacare do exactly what it was designed to do destroy the health insurance industry so that there would be no choice but eventually a government takeover. What happens to any industry when it feels bad enough and it's considered necessary for the people of a nation? The government takes it over. That's what's really going on. If you wanted better news, well, <clears throat> you should have tuned into somebody that likes lying to you because I don't do that. I give you the truth. On the truth, next story, short one here from Randy, and I'm not going to go nuts with it. I'm not going to go postal or scream or yell or call anybody a piece of shit or nothing like that. I'm just going to tell you what happened and give you a couple thoughts on it. We'll move on. Randy says, a comment about Leo's, for those that have just, just woke up, that's law enforcement officer, and double standards. In my job, I tend to work closely with Leo's. In fact, one of our supervisors is married to a detective at the sheriff's office. So a few days ago, I asked him about Florida Trooper Jane... Uh, who sued for harassment and what he thought of the case. He smiled and said, let me tell you about this in case you don't know, so you have context. This was a, a female Florida State Trooper who had re routinely seen a local police officer driving over 100 miles an hour without running code for no reason at all in his police cruiser and on the highway, and she got tired of it. She pulled him over and arrested him. And when she did that, she was harassed by literally hundreds of other law enforcement officers using all types of nasty tactics, and she ended up suing in court and winning that trial. So the thin blue line was crossed, okay? So you got it. She did the right thing, and police officers that didn't know her or who she did this to harassed the shit out of her really, really bad. You can look it up to learn more if you want to about it, okay? He smiled and said, well... She crossed the line, end quote. I asked how. He explained that if she did anything... Okay, keep in mind, this guy's driving over 100 miles an hour in traffic on the highway, in a police cruiser, off-duty, without lights and sirens for no good reason. Okay, so if she did anything, like she should do nothing, right? She should have just reported it to his supervisors. She should not have humiliated him by pulling him over Uh, humiliated him by pulling him over. She caused the citizens to disrespect law enforcement and put officers' lives, including her own, at risk. That's what this guy says. This is a police detective. I asked if she was right for suing for harassment. He said, they never should have harassed her like that. They should have handled it. He paused, smiled again, and said, differently. Look, that's creepy. Let me let me recreate that for you as though I'm this officer. Well, they never should have harassed her like that. They should have handled it differently. You, you get that, right? Okay. I asked if he was sworn to uphold the laws. He said yes. I asked if that meant all the laws. He said yes. 
I asked if that meant all the laws, even if they are being broken by a law enforcement officer. He said, quote, you know, you might be in the street one night and need help, end quote, and walked away. Okay, listen, without getting mad and angry and screaming, this is one of many systemic problems in law enforcement. The law does not apply to your brother officers. And many of you that are law enforcement officers that like this show and support me when I call out oath-breaking asshole officers who you know brutalize people and stuff like that, you know this is true too, and this is one you're going to not want to admit. But you know it's true. There's a fraternity. Law enforcement is actually called by people in law enforcement the smallest fraternity in the world, even though it's rather large. Never quite got that. But you look out for each other. Yeah, I understand that. But you know what? You look out for each other in the context of the job that you're supposed to doing. And I don't care if they took protect and serve off of your cars. If you don't believe, and I don't care what the Supreme Court said, that you're not obligated to protect... I think if you're a law enforcement officer and you don't believe that you have a responsibility to protect people, you should take that shiny badge they gave you and go hand it to your chief and go find something else to do. If you don't think that your first duty is to protect people, you have no business being a police officer. We don't need you. We don't need you because all of the crap about we have to enforce the laws and everything, unless there is some way in which a person is actually being harmed by things that other people are doing, we don't need you. We don't need you. I don't need you to write a ticket to someone for a half ounce of grass, and I don't need you to take them to jail and have them face a, fel a felony because they had an ounce and a half of grass. I don't need you to do that. I don't need you to do that. I do need you, and I don't need you to pull somebody over doing 10 miles an hour in, in traffic, doing the same speed all traffic's doing, but he happened to be the one that tripped your radar gun off to write him a ticket. I don't need you doing that. But when some asshole is flying over 100 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic and endangering lives, I do need you to do something about that because right now you're the only thing we have. And if that person happens to also be a law enforcement officer and you won't do it anyway, take your badge to your, to your, your chief and turn it in And go do something else. I'm not even going to say you're a bad guy. I'm just going to say that you are part of the problem. And you're not who we need doing this job right now. And if you would say, well, she crossed the line. She should have just reported it to her supervisor. She shouldn't have humiliated him by pulling him over. She caused the citizens to disrespect law enforcement. And put officers' lives, including her own. There's an inherent threat there. At risk. They never should have harassed her like that. They should have handled it differently. What do you mean by differently? Been a little smarter about the way they did it. That's what he means. A little more likely to get away with it. But he still meant run her out of the job. Why? Because she was one of the good cops. I believe she's actually resigned at this point, even though she won her lawsuit. She's not worth it to her anymore. Keep in mind... It wasn't Antifa, it wasn't BLM that went after this lady who did the job that other officers wouldn't do and took a dangerous, reckless man off the road and made him accountable to the law that he swore to uphold and enforce. It was other police officers. And this man's response when you say, hey, 
shouldn't the laws that apply to me also apply to you? Is, you know, you might be in the street one night and need help. You know what, dude? Whoever this is, Randy, who sent me this, please tell this guy the next time you see him, this is what I have to say to him. Your type of help is the help that I don't need. I don't need your help, and I don't want your help. And that doesn't mean I'm anti-law enforcement. It doesn't mean I'm anti-officer. It does mean when you are someone who thinks that you're above the law because you're charged with upholding the law, you're not worthy of the job, you're not worthy of the badge. I just assume you go do something like wash dishes at a Denny's or cook short order in the morning at Waffle House. You're far more qualified to do that than to be out there enforcing the law. Again, Leo's. One of the first things we can do mentally to start healing this relationship is you guys need to be honest. And when you find people like this admissed, admissed, you know, within your ranks, you need to handle them a little differently. They need to be ostracized. You don't throw in with people like this. But you got to be honest. And one of the big psychological things you can do, whether they put it on your car or not, protect and serve. If you don't like that phrase, you got no business in law enforcement. None. Let's move on to another. Um, this comes from Andrew. Andrew says, I have a side business that I run, and one of my clients is into Bitcoin, and he's willing to pay me as such. I'm open to it, as this should keep PayPal from sending me a 1099 for the work. Yay. Um, that is not why you do this, okay? Just saying. Number one, do you still recommend Coinbase for use with Bitcoin? Two, if paid in Bitcoin, would you convert to U.S. dollars immediately or hold in Bitcoin? The growth looks amazing on Bitcoin, especially given the good economic news. I wonder what it will do during the next downturn. And thanks, man. Andy. Okay, so as a business owner, if you're going to routinely accept payments in Bitcoin, and you want to be able to put a button on your site, click a button, a person pays in Bitcoin, there is no better solution than Coinbase. Coinbase is like PayPal for Bitcoin. Coinbase follows the same rules with a 1099 that PayPal does. If you receive over a certain amount of payments or a certain amount of transactions in a year, they also send you a 1099. So you're not getting out of that, okay? Um, should you convert it to U.S. dollars immediately or hold it in Bitcoin? See, this is one of those things where you just ask yourself a question. If I had $2,000 in my hot little hand, would I put it in the bank? Would I go buy drinks with it or would I buy Bitcoin with it? And if your answer is, well, I would do something other than buy Bitcoin with it, and you've received Bitcoin... Then you should convert it to cash and treat it like cash. By the way, that's going to create a taxable event because it's now U.S. cash, but it was already taxable when you accepted it as payment. Do you get that? Already tax. Now, if you sell a couple hundred bucks worth of shit in Bitcoin a year through a, a thing like Coinbase, they're never going to issue a 1099. It's small potatoes. You can let it float under the radar. No one's probably ever going to see it or care. Okay? But once you go over a certain amount of volume in business in Bitcoin, Through something like Coinbase, you're going to happen. Um, however, if you're dealing directly with a person, there's no need for Coinbase. Unless you want to convert it immediately to cash. Because Coinbase is the easiest place that I know of to take Bitcoin and to turn it into U.S. dollars. If you're willing to leave it as Bitcoin, and you're not needing somebody with a button on your thing, and they're willing to just send it to an address... Then you can get a Jack's wallet, you can set up a paper wallet, you can set up a hardware wallet, you can do whatever you want and have it sent there. And then it's really, really private, and then there really isn't a 1099K. 
And if you so choose to, you can attempt to use that fact of reality for the purpose of not giving the government the money they want to steal for you, from you. It doesn't mean that it makes it legal. It doesn't mean that it makes it legally okay. And it doesn't mean that you'll get away with it. You're just a hell of a lot more likely to. The problem is you now are sitting on Bitcoin that's difficult to turn into U.S. dollars. If you buy shit on Amazon, though, you can certainly go and buy Amazon gift cards with it. There's plenty of places you can go buy. You can go to GIFT, G-Y-F-T is an app, and you can buy gift cards just about anywhere with Bitcoin. So you could run that as your little gray market um, hidey hole with Bitcoin. And if your purpose was, and mine isn't, if your purpose was tax avoidance with Bitcoin, um, you would be better suited to do it that way. And you would probably be even better suited to uh, request payment in something like Zcash or Dash using coin mixing or something like that rather than Bitcoin to make it truly private. I don't like the word anonymous because anonymous sounds like, ooh, in the shadows. And private, like, hey, private means just keep your freaking nose out of my business. Okay? But the best thing that Coinbase does for the business owner is set you up with the ability to make people to be able to point, click, and buy with Bitcoin. That's, that's what they enable for the entrepreneur. Now, one of the really great things about that for people that provide a non-material good is that it's a way to get Bitcoin without a cash expenditure. Especially if you're selling a software product or space on a, on a, a web server or a membership or something like that. It lets you convert cash to Bitcoin without actually touching the cash and that, therefore having no cash expenditure from yourself. That's not to avoid taxation, Right? What that does is it allows you then to accumulate Bitcoin as an asset without spending your hard-earned cash. Because it's like incremental Bitcoin then. Now, the other side is, like, what do I think the future for Bitcoin is? Bitcoin is a scarce digital asset. It's the only true scarce digital asset there is. And it is scarce because it's capped, it's finite, and we know it. However, there's a massive amount of uncertainty coming on August 1st with what could be SegWit integration, user-activated soft fork, a hard fork, we just don't know. And my personal opinion, and again, I'm not telling you what to do, and I could be wrong, my personal opinion is that now is not a great time to be sitting in Bitcoin, okay? And that the majority of my Bitcoin is now either other cryptocurrencies or it's in U.S. dollars because I do believe Bitcoin will survive this period But it could cause a massive price drop, and it would be nice, if that happens, to have the ability to buy a whole bunch of it while the price is repressed. Just saying. That's how I view Bitcoin at this time, and that's how I view Coinbase. And again, Coinbase is, to me, the Boy Scout of compliance with regulations. Within reason, they do whatever government asks them to do, because they are a money handler, They work in U.S. dollars and crypto, and the minute you accept and use fiat dollars, the rules for you in the world of cryptocurrency change. You know, when you're Bitrix, you're just an exchange. You don't touch cash. It's a whole different world. You don't even need to tell Bitrix who you really are to open up a Bitrix account. You want to open a Coinbase account? you got to tell them who you are. There's a reason. But there are so many wallet applications. If you just have a one-off person who wants to pay you in Bitcoin, and you don't immediately want cash... Don't use any kind of a service. Use, you know, maybe a Jack's wallet or, you know, what have you. Why would you? Right? Why would you why would you go non-anonymous when you can stay anonymous? 
There's just two addresses out there in a, in, a, in a field of like a billion of them. You see what I'm saying? That's that's what I'm saying. Now again, if you want to, should you convert to U.S. dollars? Again, you have to look at it as would you buy the Bitcoin today? If you wouldn't, then convert it to dollars, and then it has then then I would use Coinbase because it's the easiest place to do that. But you're going to pay tax on it. Don't think you can avoid tax with Bitcoin in the conventional way that I think some people think of it. All right. So next one today. This is from Curtis. Curtis says, can I reuse the yeast mother when making mead? Background, I recently got into making ciders and meads. I'm enjoying the mead a lot more than the cider. I have a few gallons racked, and I'm looking into bottling now. My research comes from watching YouTube videos along with others and listening to TSP episodes. I know yeast is reasonably inexpensive, but I'm always looking at ways to save money and reuse whenever possible. My basic understanding of the fermentation process is that yeast isn't dead, it's just sleeping, because there's no more sugar left in the fermentation bottle to eat. So why not rack the mead when the bubbler stops, then add new honey, sugar, and water to the bottle and use the yeast from the first batch? Are there any contamination issues with this? Am I being too cheap? Love the show. Thanks for all you do, Curtis. Um, let's, let's do one thing with your question. Let's take the word mother and nothing against mothers or mothers there. And let's just throw that away. Let's just throw it away. Because it's not, because you're thinking like, like mother of vinegar, right? Like the mother in making vinegar or like the mother for like a kombucha or whatever. That's not how yeast works. You used to have a, a yeast sediment cake on the bottom. It's not a mother. It's just a whole shitload of yeast and dead yeast. And it is both. There are dead yeast and there are live yeast. And so there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a trube of yeast bodies and yeast in suspended animation. And yes, if you put new sugar with, you know, it's, it's the right ratios and it's within the tolerances of acidity and everything that that yeast likes, like a new uh, gallon or two of ye mead yuck must on it, they will wake up and they will go their asses back to work really, really fast. And they will have lots of nutrients because all the nutrient a yeast needs to consume is contained in another yeast, including the dead ones. So they're like zombies. They will consume the nutrient of the dead as they propagate more of themselves and consume sugar and poop out CO2 and oxygen. And that's literally what they're doing. They're pooping CO2 and oxygen. We're, when we drink meat or wine or whatever, we're drinking yeast poop. Good stuff, though. That alcohol is part of the poop process, okay? And yeast poop's not like, you know, animal poop or something. But, yeah, just, just to make it so savory and yummy in your mind, right? Yeast poop. So... How do you do this? Well, the best thing to do is it, to make up your must in a separate container. So if you're doing my one-gallon um, you know, uh, small-batch mead stuff, right, they have another separate one-gallon bottle and shake it all up and what have you, and then rack it on. So once it cools down to 110 or lower, and if you do my method, it's almost almost immediate that you get there because you only use a hot, enough hot water to dissolve the honey and then you use cold water after that so then you rack it which means to siphon it with a you know a, a racking cane on top of you don't want to shake that yeast cake up just it's not a good idea rack it on top of the cake that's on the bottom and make sure you put it somewhere where if it boils over it's not going to make a mess that you can't clean up like your rug or something Because when it takes off, 
it's going to take off. Because there's a lot of yeast there. A lot more than you need at that point. Think about it. You started with this little packet, and now you have like this three-quarter inch cake across the whole bottom. All right, So it's going to really go. And then when it begins to slow down and re-sediment out, it's going to make a big sediment. So rack it right away and then dump it. I personally feel that if you use two runs out of your yeast, you're good. Now, I don't do this with small batch. I'm going to say this again. I don't do this with small batch. Generally speaking, when I do small batch, I make two gallons at a time. I use my uh, Pasteur Blanc Cuvee blend, you know, half and half. And I use two packs, one of each, split between those two gallons. So a half and a half and a half and a half, because that's plenty, because they're, they're enough to make five gallons. It's so cheap, and when you're doing small batch, you end up with so much loss that I don't see having that big giant cake down there double in size, and then trying to end up with it. Now remember, I came up with a method of small batch mead making, um, or a formula, I guess you'd say, that every professional mead maker in the world and most serious amateurs would tell you is wrong, it's going to screw things up, etc. But everybody that drinks my mead loves my mead when I do it this way. And what I do is I end up with a full gallon of mead from a small batch. I make up my mead, and I use three pounds of honey to the gallon. And when I rack, I take cool, clean water, and I top up the secondary fermenter to a full gallon. And what that results in is roughly the same thing as if I'd used two and a half pounds of honey from an alcohol and body standpoint, two and a half pounds of honey, and, and allowed the angel's share to get taken away. Now, you can do that once. If you need to rack a third time, you're going to have some loss. You don't do the top-up thing again. Trust me, okay? But if you, you, you're basically making a concentrated mead wort, and then you're diluting it down to a standard drinking mead, uh, which will give you... I mean, you're still looking at the numbers like 14.5% is what most of my meads come out to doing it that way. Now, people will say when you tell them that, well, you could kick the yeast off again because you've lowered the alcohol and it could start going. That's fine. I like dry meats. I don't like sweet meats. Sweet meats suck as far as I'm concerned. So that's fine. That just means I'm going to be a full, complete, attenuated mead, which is what I want. Okay? It's not a problem. And by the way, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen. Because at three pounds to the gallon, when the mead's gone still, you've, even at that point, you've really, there's not much, you're going to have a little bit of fermentation in the secondary fermenter anyway. All right, that's why it's called a fermenter, not a secondary holder, a secondary fermenter. So there's going to be a little bit of that anyway. But there's, it's, it's not like it's going to take off and go through the roof again or something like that. All right, so a completely different subject. This comes from Troy. Troy says, big centralized utility power is trying very hard to suppress decentralized solar photovoltaic powder, and they're about to get their ass kicked. There's a pattern recognition thing going on here again. And there's a link uh, to an article on Vox.com. Uh, the article on Vox is called Utilities Fighting Against Rooftop Solar Are Only Hastening Their Own Doom. Before I go into this, I am going to frame this with who Vox is. I want you to understand very clearly, 
This is not an ad hominem attack. I am not saying the information is not valid because of who Vox is. I'm just saying that when you analyze something specifically that's written really as an opinion piece, and this is, um, that does bring some real legitimate fact into it, that if the person's coming from a certain angle, they're going to portray things to the benefit of that angle. But here's basically what they're saying, that there is a cycle going on right now where battery prices fall, and therefore more of those batteries are adopted into usage. That usage creates increased battery demand, which results in a whole new generation of even better batteries, and then battery those prices fall again, and they tap trap into new markets, and then increase battery. You see, it's like a, like that it keeps going. We keep getting better and faster and larger capacity batteries for solar systems, and that that will continue. And when and what the issue with the with the power companies is, um, let me go back to, to Vox is. Vox is very left, very left. You know, half of their stories are why Trump sucks. Okay, so they're very left, and obviously for the left. Solar is a lightsaber, and it's going to save polar bears and, and everything else. So it's coming from from that viewpoint. Also, the left hates people actually, you know, making money. So one of the things they point out is the evil power companies don't actually make money generating power. They make money building things, and they make money basically for charging you fees to actually let you get power across their infrastructure. That they're they're because they're controlled. They're controlled utilities. And they don't make a profit per kilowatt, they make a profit for delivery. So they're like a toll road for electricity. And that as more and more people switch to solar, what they do is they, they start trying to squeeze those people with special fees and shit, but those people fight back, so then they have to pass the additional costs on to other users. So I have solar and you don't, and you live next door to me. And I'm generating 60% of my power. So even though they're not selling to me by the kilowatt, by law they apportion how much they, they are actually making off of all of us off how much you use. So now I'm paying less to use the road than you are because I use it less. Makes sense. If there's a toll road, right? If there's a toll road and you drive it three times a day and I drive on it once a day, right? Then I pay once and you pay three times. That's how it works. But apparently that's a problem for these people. And what happens then is, well, as your cost goes up, you get a case of the ass and you check into these batteries and the solar solution. And the cost of that solution right now actually is not, you're still better off getting screwed right now, is a nice way to put it. But it becomes less and less the case. And, and more and more people are going, it's close enough, I'm tired of this shit, and they're taking the leap, which increases the battery market and increases the solar market and then further drives down costs. And the more the power companies squeeze people, the faster this process will go, and pretty soon everybody's going to have solar panels and batteries and a backup generator. Okay. There's a lot of wishful thinking in there. There is an air of truth, but this is a lot of wishful thinking. And you can tell this is written by someone that thinks the power companies are evil bastards for daring to think that they should make a profit by providing electricity to millions of people. Let me ask you a question. If you were responsible 
for making sure a thousand people got power every month. That's just you by yourself. You were you power Inc. for 1,000 families, 1,000 homes. Got power because of what you did. Would you feel that you deserve something, you know, fair in returns for it? Do you think that you should at least make enough money to not have to do anything else that making sure a thousand people get power every month would be a, a fair and just thing to charge for? Apparently not if you're at Vox. You think that that makes you an evil bastard. You should just do it because you care. Okay? Um, and because of that bias, what is happening here is a pattern recognition. Okay, the guy that sent this to me, you're dead on. The author has legitimately identified the situation and the pattern and the long-term trend. However, I believe because his desire is to see this happen faster, his picture he's painting results in it happening faster than it ever can. Because in the end, here's still the situation. I live in a 2,500-square-foot house. I live in Texas. It is 100 degrees today. If my entire roof was covered with the best solar panels that are available right now, and I turned one of my upstairs giant closets, my storage closets, into nothing but a wall of Tesla battery, you know, battery walls, I probably still couldn't keep this house in the low 70s through the summer, and I want it that way. So even if money was not the limitation... I would have to, I'd be putting an array up out the back somewhere to get enough collection to run the power needs of my house. And especially being someone running aquaponics systems and pond pumps and stuff like that, I mean, I am actually okay paying the power company what I pay them for power here. Here's where he's right. I live in Texas. We have power deregulation. People have a choice. We don't call the power company. We pick a power company. Yep. And I pay about nine cents change for a kilowatt hour. There's people paying three times that. Now, if my power bill went up by three, might I start shopping around for what, you know, what reasonable alternative energy solution might cut my bill? And this is where you have to be careful in not tuning out the other side. Because what the left says is if power is expensive enough, people will invest in alternative energy. They are correct. But who says it's okay to artificially inflate the cost other than a socialist? So this is where it's, it's an opportunity for a lesson. The socialist which is most people in this country are socialists. I know you don't want to believe that, but it's true. Not just the left. Not just the left. Go, go tell the average person that calls himself a right-wing uh, Republican that we should eliminate Social Security. That we should get rid of it. That we should not screw over people that are already on it and do some kind of trans, but we should just get rid of it. We should buy our way out of it and eliminate it and give people their money back and let them figure it out for themselves. And if they end up 75 with no money, hey, they got to keep that 15% for all those years instead of having it stolen from them. They're on their own. Or they have to fall on the, the, the arms of charity. And most right-wingers will say, oh, you can't do that to old people. Oh, my Social Security. Right? That's, we have to do something for the old. That's what they'll say. Okay? So most people in this country are socialists. The only question is, how socialist are they? 
And the socialist solution to the fact that alternative energy is expensive and fossil energy is cheap and wanting society transition to renewable energy is to make cheap energy expensive so they cost the same so that then people will say, well, I, if they cost the same or if the cheap energy now costs more, I'd rather invest in solar because it feels good and I get tax credits and I'm saving polar bears and I have my own power then and that's more, you know, all these things. Where with the capitalists, not the crony capitalists, not the neo-fascist capitalists that we have in America, not the crony capitalists, the true agorist, who is for a free and open market, says the solution is for people to innovate and make the alternative energy solutions practical. And I believe they can. I just think it's going to take longer than people that write this article type of stuff think. I'm thinking the neighborhood of 20 years. I think we're about 20 to 25 years from being able to do the following. Solar panels that can be serviced versus replaced and have life cycles of more than 50 years. Batteries that can be serviced versus replaced and have life cycles in the neighborhood of 25 years or more. I think we're about 20 years from that. And have the capacity of the battery and the panels such that the average 2,000 square foot home can run on solar in most climates in America. Not all, but most climates in America. And I believe part of that will be the stuff that like Elon Musk is doing right now. They'll start building new homes. They'll just have solar roofs. Not solar panels, solar roofs. The tile is a solar panel. That's going to happen. Right now, it already pays itself back in like 10 years. The difference in a, a brand new roof or a brand new solar roof. It's about a 10-year payback time. If you're financing it the way most people finance a home, it's a win big time. So you go ahead and you do it. Because once it's paid back the next 20 years, it's paying for itself. It's putting money in your pocket, even if it doesn't do all of your needs. But we're, we're still in the infancy of this stuff. And what people want to say is, well, it's repressed by government, it's repressed by the oil companies. Trust me, everybody out there that's in that industry... They may prey upon thievery, and they call them tax credits, where you take somebody else's tax money to cover your solar panels and things like that. Um, but they are doing everything they can to make the best product that they can, to compete on the market, and they want to sell it for as little as possible. If there was a way to build a solar array that was 10 foot by 10 foot and could, and could power a house right now, they would be here. You would have them. The limitation is not the, the industry being held back. The limitation is not a lack of a will to do it. The limitation is the technology. We're just not there yet. And we have people like Stephen Harris that give you the impression that we'll never get there. Solar is good for making heat, not electricity. I disagree. And all I can think of when I hear people say shit like that, very simply, is my 1985 decision to spend $600 to buy my Commodore 64, half of which was paid for by my father. And the computer that I can buy today versus what that Commodore 64 did for $600 in 1985 money, what can I buy with $600 in 2017 money when it comes to a computer compared to that Commodore 64? You get, you get one-tenth of that in improvement comparatively to solar panels, and you're done. And to really drive that point home, if we inflation adjust $600 in 
1985 to 2017, $1,363. I worked my happy little ass off to raise $300 and then get my dad, tricked him into it because he didn't think I would do it, to pony up the other $300 to buy a computer that did pretty much nothing. It played video games. We could do some basic line commands in it. And then with a modem that was like $180 bucks. And me and two friends bought one together and we shared it. We took it to different houses whenever we were hanging out. We took the modem with us and we could dial into the early chat boards. You had to have a number. You dialed into a single chat board. It was like a long string of, of messages. And you could leave messages for people and read what other people thought. That was $600, bucks, which was actually $1,300 bucks in 1985. Tell me what kind of computer you can buy for $1,300 bucks today. I have a badass MacBook, the smaller one. Badass that I bought refurbished for $800. If you don't think those technological innovations are coming to solar and wind and stuff like that, you're just in denial. I mean, I think there's people that are so adverse to the bullshit that comes out of global warming. I'll agree that it's bullshit. And that's why I say it's the most damaging thing that's ever happened to the environment and to alternative energy is the global warming scam. It's, done more, it's taken sane, rational people because honestly, in reality... People on the right, especially the secular right, tend to be a lot more rational and logical than the secular left. I know some of you are pissed off about that, but I'm sorry, it's true. It's, you just have conversations with them, and it's, they think in a lot more of a linear, logical, realistic standpoint. But then they say, ah, solar and wind don't work. So, windmills kill birds. And you're talking to a guy that shoots 100 pheasants a year or something. Like, just relax. Right? And it's because of the it's because of the anger at the bullshit that is CO2 is warming the earth and we're all gonna die unless we tax carbon. And and you think if you're on the left or you believe in global warming that those people are evil, they're not evil, but they are blind to actual concrete technologies that are working and getting better because they're so perfectly divided from you by this bullshit in the middle that you, by the way, believe like a religion. I mean, before the left says anything about the right being overly religious, you guys got it. You have so many, like, the, the left is, is, statism is a religion, AGW is a religion. Not that, I don't, I think statism is a religion for everybody that's a statist. It's just how deeply, how devout are you? And boy, the left just seems to be a lot more devout to me. Anyway, I, I digress. But, The guy, if you want to read the article, he's right. His timeline's way too short. Way too short. He writes this like it's going to happen in the next couple of years. Um, it's not. Technology's not there. That's, that's all there is to it. And that means that the evil power companies can get away with what they're doing for quite a bit longer before this becomes more realistic. But things like Tesla's Powerwall, they're going to get better and better and better and cost less and less and less over time. Let's go with a straight-up prepper question here. Will in Tennessee says, Hey, Jack, do you have any thoughts, advice, concerns about doing business with my Patriot Supply, a retailer for the freeze-dried foods and other preps? I'm assuming that you're familiar with them. They've been around about as long as TSP and seem to share a number of your philosophies when thumbing through their website. I've been aware of them for some years. Uh, I've thought about ordering some coffee and other products to sample. I'm just interested in your opinion because I know that whatever it is, you will be honest. Thanks, Jack. Will in Tennessee. Well, yes, you can you can count on me to be honest, even when you don't want to hear what I have to say. Uh, in this case, I don't think it'll be that, but it might not be the answer you're expecting. L let's start out with, do I have any concerns about doing business with my Patriot Supply? 
If that means, do I think that if you buy stuff from them, they will send it to you, you will get it in a good, timely manner, they will give you reasonable customer service, uh, they, will, they will send what they promised, and it will be edible, usable food. I have no concerns. If you want a big case of you know, beef stroganoff or some shit like that, and you want to buy it from them and you're happy with the price, buy it, they'll send it to you, you'll be okay, you'll be happy. So I have no concerns when it comes to you know, from a, from a business reliability standpoint. However, my problem with all of these companies, it, this has nothing to do with my Patriot Supply as an individual company. My problem with all of them, and it's why I've stayed as far away from as I can and still be in the space, because I do it, I'm going to say that I'll come back to this and I say I acknowledge the value of commercially produced long-term storage foods as a piece of your holistic food uh, storage plan, okay, a piece. But all of them market on fear. And my Patriot Supply, I've seen it, definitely does it. Disasters, blah, end of the world, blah, the government is devaluing the dollar, ah, fill your house with our food. And, I mean, they, they market that way. Um, and I understand why they do it. They do it because it works. So you have to give people a little bit of leeway in their marketing as long as they're still, as long as at the end of the day, they're promising something, they're charging a reasonable price for it, and they're delivering it, and you get it, and if the customer's happy, okay, fine. But the other side of that is in that mentality, and in that, that's what, and, and the other reason they do it is not just because it works, because they have to. Because the average person is going to say, well, how much food do I really need? So you need to make that number in their head a lot. And that's why they have all these nice little packages, a one-week supply, a one-month supply, a one-year supply, right? So you get them to buy the one-week supply, and they stick it in their closet, and then they don't eat it, and they say, hey, I feel better, I feel safer. Maybe if I buy a month, I'll feel even better, right? And you keep marketing that way so that you – because what they're trying to do is build a customer base that's residual, See, it's very difficult to build a sustainable business if every sale has to be to a new person. Why do you think so many auto dealerships have gone to pushing leases over sales? Because the person you sell a car to might come back to you. The person that you lease a car to is going to come back to you. And then you can take the leased car and you know exactly what you can sell it for in the terms of the lease when it went out the door and you get to talk to the person that leased the car again. Okay? So how much storage food can you sell a person before they run out of room in their closet, their pantry, or their bunker? The answer is there's a finite limit. So at the same time, like any good business, you have to be bringing new business in. So they take this, this, this marketing tactic of fear and blah, blah, blah. I've taught for years that if the average American had 60 days of food in reserve that we would have as much food security as we would need in 98% of the situations that could happen in America. But that's all we need. And I think longer is better, and we personally have more than that. Okay? And I've also taught that across the, to, to do 60 days, you need very little, if any, you know, industry-prepared, professionally-prepared, institutional-prepared long-term storage food. That with the food we buy from the grocery store, with canning methods, with dehydration, with stuff like that, 
if we're actually using the food we store, it's relatively easy to get to 60 days. And I taught above everything else for, for 10 years now, right? Eat what you store. Well, nine years, right? Eat what you store. Store you eat. Eat what you store. Store you eat. Real simple. Eat what you store. Store you eat. So my problem with My Patriot Supply and all of these companies that specifically say, buy food, buy food, buy food, is that it's it's like that battery pack that Stephen Harris hates so much because even though it could be good, it probably isn't. So the person buys the battery jump pack and throws it in their trunk and thinks they're good to go and three years later their car dies and it doesn't work because it's dead. Right? That's that's how this long-term storage food gets you know, treated. And I've, I've, I've visited enough homes of listeners and seen it in attics and in closets and stuff and, and had them say, it was before I started listening to you, right? Don't, don't, be, you know, don't feel bad about it. So where does it, because I said it fits in. So where does it fit in? It fits in this way. The first thing we do is we keep a food journal, which is just a little pad of paper on our, on our, uh, on our kitchen counter for about a month. And we journal every single thing everybody in the house eats. I don't care if it's a gum stick. We journal it. And we make stars next to the ones or some sort of mark, check mark, I don't care what, that, that store without refrigeration. And then we start putting additional stars for every time we use it more than once in a month. And that's our core. And we build off of that. So we do that. We store everything we can store that makes sense. And then we start looking at becoming a producer. How can we take you know things and make them storable? And we increase that. And then we look at the really long term. So that's where we start saying, well, you know what? I don't need to, to, to buy this giant case of beef stroganoff because I can store the powder to make the cream, and I can use that in my cooking. Or I can store some side of a condensed milk product to make a cream, and I can, you know, I can store flour. I can store noodles. The beef. See, the beef is the complicated long-term storage of meat in a way that when I when I reconstitute it actually tastes like meat is a little more difficult. So maybe I, I pick up some number 10 cans of beef and some number 10 cans of chicken and some sausage crumbles and things like that. And those are my long-term storage things like that. And every once in a while I crack one open and I cook with it till it's gone. And if I liked it, I buy a new can and replace it. And I use even that long-term storage very spartanly through my normal food consumption. And if you're really, really, really worried about the apocalypse and long-term, then rice and beans are the cheapest options. You can throw them into five-gallon buckets, go to you know, Gander Mountain, who's going out of business now because their service sucks, and it just that's why they're going out of business. God, their service sucks. I left over $200 worth of ammunition sitting on a counter in Gander Mountain, piled up like a pyramid one day because... There was one cash register clerk with one person ahead of me, and after standing there with only one person ahead of me and nobody willing to open up a cash register for 15 minutes, I made my pile very obviously, and I walked out the door. That's why. So they're going out of business. So they probably have the cheap hand warmers. Hand warmers are the exact same material inside a hand warmer as inside an oxygen absorber. All it is is iron filings okay, with a rapid oxidizer agent. So what happens to iron when it oxidizes? It rusts. It's iron oxide. Remember that from chemistry class? Okay. So there's, a, there's an agent in there that causes an acceleration of the oxidation process in the iron. 
Well, when iron oxidizes quickly, you get dun, 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 heat. So it makes good hand warmer. But the other thing that happens is what? If the iron oxidizes, that means that it bonds with oxygen. So all a oxygen absorber is that you put in your little jar is a little mini hand warmer with little bits of iron in it that bond rapidly with oxygen and tie it up as iron oxide so it's not circling around in the airspace. So we get a five-gallon bucket. We fill it with red beans. We pitch a hand warmer in there, pound the lid on with a freaking uh, rubber mallet. By the way, you're not getting that thing open. You're going to have to cut it off if you do that way. So maybe a gamble is the way to go if you really want to. But just think, like, how much food storage you put away in rice, beans, pasta, and whole grains for $200. Bucks. And the answer is a lot more than $200 will buy you at Emergency Essentials or My Patriot Supply or whatever. And there's your apocalypse food if you ever really think you need it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. To have you know a year's worth of canned food, you know like you know, MRE style or whatever, but there's probably so much better ways to use your money. And I see these companies like this as not being bad in of themselves, but when people jump all in on them, they end up spending way too much money on a component of their preps that they're highly likely never to use. Where if we build a 60 to 90 day pantry that is 80% things that we use on a regular basis and we rotate it, if anything, we end up spending long-term less money. And that gives us more money to leverage into other areas of preparedness. So I have nothing negative to say about my Patriot Supply that I wouldn't say about anybody else operating in their space. And I think it's more in how preppers use them and view them than what they are in and of themselves. Okay, next one comes from uh, Chris in California. Chris says, is it worth buying or making a gas mask for every member of my family? Details, everyone seems to ignore the first three in three minutes, three days, three weeks rule. Thanks for all you do, saying you rock is an understatement. Chris in California. Um, I don't own gas masks. If you did, I wouldn't fault you for it. I'm sure there are instances that could occur where it might be beneficial. But I look at gas masks as a prior service U.S. Army soldier. And if you were anywhere where your gas mask might be necessary, then there was a little case attached to your ass, actually your right hip, um, and you, actually, was it your left hip? No, your right hip, yeah, your right hip, you reach over your left hand, And I don't know how they wear gas, gas cases now. You reach over, pull again, and you had to be able to don your mask in eight seconds. Because that's about how much time you had before. If there was really a threat, you were dead. Or, you know, having your back fracture as you spasmed so violently or what have you. And any other way that you can end up dead in a chemical or gas attack. So, and I can also tell you as a prior service soldier that they are immensely effective. Um, when you go through basic training in the Army, and I don't know exactly what they do in other branches of service, but when you go through basic training in the Army, you put your little mask on, and you go in this room, they call a gas chamber. And they make you take your mask off. Well, actually, what they do first is you stand around in there and you do some calisthenics and stuff like that to convince yourself that it works. You know, So you're not afraid to move around. You learn that, you know, if you have it sealed properly. And all. Then you break the seal, and you clear your mask, 
So let's say you were in a, a bad situation and something bumped your mask and broke the seal. You know how to clear it so you don't die. You know, vomit in your mask or whatever. So you clear your mask. You learn how to do that. And then they say, take your mask off. And uh, there's all kinds of horror stories. But what they really do is, depending on your tolerance and your obstinance, keep you in there long enough so they know that you're really getting affected by the gas. Because a lot of people, what they do is they take a huge breath in and they try not to breathe and it starts burning your face and your nose almost unbelievably at first and you slowly let that air out but sooner or later you're gonna have that's why they'll ask you your 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 rank your name last for your social whatever they'll make you breathe and when that stuff goes in oh my god does it suck oh it sucks it snot flies out your nose and, and you, you know when you're a young recruit what you're thinking is they're doing this because they like making me miserable But I remember we had a really good drill sergeant. I had a great drill sergeant in basic. And he said on that day, on our bus ride back to the barracks area, we make you take it off so that you'll believe that it works and so that you'll believe how bad it really is. Because if you didn't take it off while you were in there, you would never believe that it works as good as it does or that the gas was as bad as it is. He was right. Now, what does that all have to do with your question? Unless you have a gas mask where you can deploy it and get it on your face within eight seconds, it's useless. It's useless. So if you're making a decision to add a gas mask to your preps, then you need to think to yourself, what would be the instances this would be issued for? See, we think about deployment. as we, Well, if the, you know, the blue helmets come, I'll get my AR-15 and my magazines and my battle pack. and all. That's deployment of the equipment, right? And generally, the deployment of equipment occurs prior to the need for it. It's a threat response matrix. So when, when I was you know, underneath a helmet working on uh, a, a part of it, a suspension, Uh, in a motor pool in Panama, I did not have my gas mask on me. It was snugly put away in my wall locker. Right? Because, well, I'm probably not going to get gas while I'm working on my truck. So, effectively, it was like not having it all. The equipment was stored. But when we went on a field training exercise that was simulating combat, then we deployed the equipment with ourselves. Now the gas mask came out. Because even though the bad guys probably weren't coming, you know, people like me that usually got on Op 4 probably were going to come by your tent in the middle of the night and throw a CS grenade in there. Yes, I did that more than once. Okay, um, And so because there was an added probability of threat, the equipment was deployed. So if you want to buy gas masks for your family, I am not going to pick on you. But I'm going to ask you, under your protocols... Right? Remember, we have protocols and procedures. Under your protocols, when do you deploy them? Because if they're sitting in a closet or a footlocker or a safe room or whatever, they are fundamentally useless, and I doubt you're going to carry one around. And let me explain what I mean by fundamentally useless. Under the seat of your car, in general, they're fundamentally useless. Because if something happens, by the time you dig it out from under there, you're dead. Now, 
the answer, a rational sane answer could be, well, if um, there's a chemical attack in another city in America and it becomes the case that that's a probability, then I might start walking around and teach my kids to walk around with a gas mask. It's happened in history. They were issued to people in, in, the, in, in England because they were always afraid that the Nazis were going to start bombing them with gas. People walked around with gas masks in the middle of a war. You, you might, so you might say, well, like if, the, if, the, if the threat goes up, then I might want to deploy that. Okay. That's a legit. I don't know what the real risk is, but it's a legitimate answer. You know, or if I'm if I'm traveling and something happens and I hear about it, yeah, I might have the gas mask in the trunk. But if I have to go through an area that possibly was contaminated, then it's there and I can put it on. Okay. But I'm back to the last question. What's well, probability and have you shored up everything else in your preparedness? To me, that's kind of like a cherry on top when you're really like, I don't really know what area of my life I'm not well prepared in. Maybe I would add this. And I feel very prepared in so many ways. And maybe I'm a little idealistic in this world, but I just haven't really felt the need to get a gas mask. I, I just don't. And... I'll tell you what, people say, well, what if there's a pandemic, you know, like you're going to walk around wearing your gas If you think you're going to wear a gas mask for long, sustained periods of time, those of you that are prior service military, you know why I'm laughing. You've never worn one for any length of time. Um, we would do exercises where we'd be in full chem suits for eight hours. It, it was, it's rough to get through. It's, it's, you know, you're drinking water through your little canteen straw. You can't eat. I mean, you can't, right? It's so hot. It's so clammy. It's, 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 and then there's the limit to how long the filters work. Like the, there's a, a time duration limit, et cetera. So, um, you can do it, but I wouldn't recommend it unless you're really down to, I don't know what else to do on actually being prepared. This one comes from Miguel and Miguel says, You jerk. Jerk is in all capitals. There's an exclamation point after it. And then there's one of those little colon bracket smiley faces. Right? It says, yeah, you. Big, fat, ugly, built-on, loving jerk. J-E-R-K, exclamation point, exclamation point. Last week, something went very wrong with the electric grid here. And there was a blackout that covered a couple countries in Central America. I wanted to panic. Really wanted to. I wanted to not know what to do. Rush to the supermarket to get rice, beans, and water. Oh yeah, and toilet paper. I wanted to be afraid for my safety and that of my family. I really wanted to be trapped in traffic because the stoplights weren't working. I wanted to feel like a sheep. But because of you, this was a total non-issue. You totally ruined it for us. We had three layers of redundancy to cook with gas. Our community well pump stopped, but we were had enough water for at least three days. Food, yeah, we got that too. Security, check. You messed up the end of the world as we know it. Panic for us. We absolutely hate you for that. You, sir, are a complete and absolute jerk. Can't thank you enough for changing our lives for the better. 506 Prepper. P.S. On a serious note, this gave us a chance to test our preps and find the holes. We need to beef up our radio communications, get a decent generator, and finish setting up the inverters, among a few other things. Awesome. Awesome, Miguel. And if those of you that may be new to the show might wonder why that email came in that way, uh, there's a lot of times I've done shows where I'm like, these are things you should do in your life 
And I promise you, you're never going to email me and say, you're a big jerk, Jack. I paid off all my debt, and now I have money that I don't know what to do with, and it's your fault. And occasionally, people being good-natured and fun write me a Jack, you're a jerk email that says, I did what you said, and it worked out, and you're a big jerk for it. Uh, and I always love getting these. So if you ever want to write me a Jack, you're a jerk email like this, I will probably uh, read it on the air for everyone to hear and hopefully get a good chuckle out of. Next one comes from Kiernan. Kiernan says, Hey, Jack, if robots and automation are going to replace half or three-quarters of jobs in the next 20 years, then will half or three-quarters of the current car owners be unable to afford to purchase the self-driving cars, which I guess will not be cheap because of all the technology they contain, as well as the cars requiring regular periodic safety testing and calibration. Today, most unemployed people do not own cars. I see a conflict between automation, unemployment, versus large-scale production of autonomous vehicles. Will the volume of our cars on the road then hugely decrease? And if so, what would cause the collapse of the oil? In would that cause the collapse of the oil industry and road maintenance? Will we see a move toward a Chinese-style economy of the past, where most people are cycling because they can't afford cars, and the ruling class will own most of the wealth? Will the roads become new routes for trams and electric trains? There are a lot of roads out there. Who will benefit from the future of automation and robots? Thanks in regards, Kiernan. Let me start with the end question. Who will benefit the most from the future of automation and robots? Those who are prepared and take appropriate action to adjust as the change comes to capitalize from it to the best of their ability based on who they are. Which means poor people, rich people, super rich people, average people, everybody can benefit, but most won't. Most won't. Because they won't adapt. That includes wealthy people will refuse to adapt. Let's talk about the individual issue you brought up real quick. Okay, so if cars become more expensive because all this fancy bells and whistles and less and less people are employed, how will people own them? Okay, so this is, this is the mega trend again. This is the mega trend. Access over ownership. Less people will own cars, but most people will have access to transportation. There may be some additional transportation development in mass transit, And honestly, autonomous vehicles are one way, one way, and Uber-like services, no matter how they're employed, are one way to make mass transit more valid. So let me explain that from a real-world example. When I worked for Fluke Networks, I had about 40 sales representatives underneath me as regional vice president for the Northeast. Uh, these sales representatives were deployed everywhere from Southern Virginia to the you know to the the populated part of Maine, out to the Pennsylvania Ohio border, down through West Virginia, that whole area there, the Golden Triangle, you know, uh, Boston, uh, New York, etc. Okay, um, and I had a car, and I did a lot of driving, and I did a lot of flying, and I did a lot of train rides. And one of my favorite places to go was Washington, D.C. I actually liked working that market. I know, it's like, wow, really, do you like... I didn't go spend time with senators and congressmen, right? I did get to see a lot of the history when I was there in my time off visiting and stuff like that. But actually what made me like working that is I would drive my car to the Philadelphia train station. I would park my car there and pay the, well, actually, you know, it's a corporate job, so I just put that on the expense report, right? And I would get on a train, leave Philadelphia on the Amtrak Excel Express, 
I would go straight in to downtown D.C., which is the heart of the metro train system for the greater D.C., you know, Maryland area. And I had three sales reps for that area. And that freaking train system could get me anywhere to be close to where my reps were. So I would get a hotel near the central station, and I would contact my reps and say, what um, what station, you know, what pickup point do you want to meet me at tomorrow? And so, you know, I'd take the blue line to wherever, and I would come up out of the tunnel, and there my guy sitting there in his car, and we would go out and spend the whole day, you know, doing sales calls. And then he didn't have, you know, we might get dinner somewhere. I did usually almost always bought my rep that I spent a day with dinner. Sometimes they would invite a guest or something like that because it's good team building and account relationship management stuff is how I got so damn fat. Um, and then, you know, when that was over, if we were clear on the other side of town from where we started and clear on the other side of town from downtown D.C. where my hotel was, well, all he would do is take me to the nearest station point and I would get on a train And I would come up out of a hole, and I would walk to my hotel. And I could be down there for a week without a car. Because the train got me most of the way to where I needed to go. It was safe, and it was reliable, it was easy to understand. Very, very easily the way that, that uh, DC Metro is laid out. Very, I mean, you look at the map, oh, okay, I need to get over here, I'm here, I take this to that, and I switch and I go to there. Right? It's fast, always runs. It was great. So... If there was a fast rail system from, let's say, Dallas to Oklahoma City, and you needed to go to Oklahoma City, the biggest thing that would keep you from using it is, well, what do I do when I get to Oklahoma City, and how do I get to Dallas? Because I can't write the expense off of having my car parked for whatever. But if you could get an Uber-like device for 15 bucks and get on the train in, in Dallas, and a couple hours later be in Oklahoma City, by the way, with your laptop plugged in with Internet access working, playing, doing whatever you do on a nice quick train ride, get off, jump in another vehicle, and go somewhere. That makes mass, that makes mass transit work. Mass transit is good at moving large numbers of people from places where a large number of people need to move from one place to another, but our society is so distributed, like, because you work in Dallas doesn't mean, like, if there was a train that went to downtown, it would really work for you. Because Dallas is a big laid-out city. So if we have these Uber-like autonomous vehicles, then yeah, maybe that empowers it. So I think what you're looking at is it doesn't really matter if people can afford to own the vehicle. Can they afford to access it? And I don't think we're going to see in 20 years no user-operated vehicles. I have a vehicle that will probably be around in 20 years. I don't plan on getting rid of it. As little as I drive it, it will probably still run 20 years from now. And I'm miserly enough, I'll probably still have it and keep it and use it. Right? Big Red the Truck. And I don't think Uber is going to be doing a good job of hauling, you know, four tons of gravel to my house. I just don't see it. So I'll still use this type of technology because right now we found out Uber finally is coming to our house. We had somebody come here for a farm tour and they were dropped off and they hailed an Uber and they came and got was like, oh, great. Next time I want to go downtown with my wife, if I pull that Uber app up and it says there's a driver available, I'm not driving. By the time I pay for, you know, parking downtown, I'm half of it's there. Plus, now I can have two margaritas instead of one at dinner and still get home and not worry about going to jail. <clears throat> so you can see that people are willing to use that technology. But 
The bigger issue here, and what you're hitting on, you're just picking out one area, is what you would call the automation paradox. Or what maybe I'm the one that came up with that. The automation employment paradox. And, and here's how that works. If you automate enough to eliminate enough jobs, you so damage the ability of the consumer to do business with you, do you adversely affect yourself? It's like mutually assured destruction during the 80s of the Cold War. Like, we're not pressing the button. If we press our button, they press their button, and we're all dead. So if you are Ford or Chevy or GM, yes, automated vehicles are your thing, but if you are a company that manufactures widgets and you employ 2,000 people, but you can get rid of 1,800 of them and make just as many widgets for less money, it seems like a no-brainer, but if enough people do that, enough people aren't employed, who buys the widgets, who buys the cars, who buys the dog collar, who buys the computer, who buys, you know, and where do they get the money to buy this from? And, of course, this is where we get into the whole universal basic income thing. But I see that as being a thing that would provide people the basics to stay alive, not all the niceties. Well, the reality is there's always going to be problems, so there's always going to be things for people to do, so there's always going to be some way that people can come up with something to do for money. What we're just talking about is massive unemployment, not complete unemployment. And people say, well, like, no job is safe. No job's safe, but there's something else to do for the, the, the enterprising person. But I think what you'll see is, is, is a big growth, actually, in the entrepreneur class, the self-employed class, the, 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 the new tradesmen. They're not going to be tradesmen, like the new tradesmen. So if you think about the feudal order, you had serfs, you had, you had you know, royals and uh, nobles, right? So <clears throat> maybe you were never going to be a king or a prince, but maybe you were a duke or a duchess or a knight, right? And you had it pretty good. So we think of the feudal era and we think of, you know, this 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 place where there was a class of royals and a class of the peons. But there was a merchant class and a trade class. And the merchant class was kind of like the highest you could go without becoming a noble. And the trade class was under that. Those were people like the, you know, your coopers that made barrels. Right? So That skill obviously doesn't really pay very well anymore, but that type of thinking, people that move into a realm where they find a value-add proposition. So you'll see a growth of that, but you also see a huge growth of like the new surf. And yes, the companies have to figure out, how do we implement this automation in such a way that we can capitalize by doing so, but we don't put ourselves out of business because we so adversely affect the economy, there's nobody there to buy our shit anymore. However... It's going to progress rapidly anyway. Because when company A does it, company B has to do it to keep up. And if company A doesn't do it, company B is going to do it, or company C is going to do it, or company Z is going to do it. Somebody is going to spot the opportunity, and they're going to take the action. And they're going to drive down price, and they're going to increase service. And when they do, the competitors will either move there too, move there further and be better or go out of business. So the automation has to happen. What it looks like and how it rolls out, we'll have to wait to see. We don't get to know the future. We only get to experience as it becomes the present. All right. So this question comes from Andrew. Andrew says, I was curious on what you might think about turning a water tank into aquaculture. <clears throat> Check a 2,000-gallon uh, tank. For $1,000, shave the top off, what do you think? Okay, Andrew, I think this might work, 
but I don't know how practical it really is for you. So let me talk about some of my concerns there. So these poly tanks that you're talking about, so what, what he's talking about, you've probably seen them. They're great big, usually black, because it keeps the water from getting skanky. Sometimes they're white. Poly tanks, big round, usually about eight feet around. And a 2,500-gallon one's about seven and a half feet tall. And you usually set them up like by a barn or a house or a garage, and you plumb a gutter-fed pipe into them, and then all the rain that comes off the roof gets catched. That's, that's what they're for. The top, the bottom's flat, but the top's like a dome. And that dome applies quite a bit of structural integrity to keep it becoming deformed by the weight of all that water. Just to put it in perspective, how much does, how much does 2,500 uh, gallons of water weigh? Well, uh, water weighs 8.34 pounds to the gallon, so I'm not going to try to get that accurate, but it's going to be around 20,000 pounds or 10 tons to 2,500. You can run the math yourself. I'm probably within a few hundred to maybe 1,000 pounds. So somewhere between 10, 10 and a half tons being held by a little thin bit of poly. Now, I know it can be done with 1,000-gallon tanks. Um, there was a gentleman that was on this show not that long ago about aquaponics, and he has a very large uh, setup. He's got like 50-foot-long uh, high tunnels, like a dual stack of them, and they're like 30 feet wide each to 60 feet. And he's running, I think, I think two 1,000-gallon tanks. So when you start talking about doing 2,000 gallons, go look at the video. I have it linked to in the, the show notes. It says Richard Hastings' video featuring poly fish tanks. And he has done exactly what you said. He has cut the top off of the poly tanks. And for the volume he's doing, it probably made a lot of sense. He has big nets on them to keep the fish from jumping out and killing themselves, by the way. But a thousand gallon tank um, is probably about four foot tall versus like seven and a half. So you can see like there's a little less to worry about with structural integrity there. And if you look at the way he's done it, he's cut basically a hole and he, he's not cut the tank below the shoulder curve. So if you're going to do this, I would definitely cut you know kind of a hole in the top, not the top off, to preserve some of the rigidity. But I would be a little worried. A little worried at the, the the structural integrity of a 2,500 gallon tank. Now the other thing is it's seven and a half foot tall. So then there's an access issue getting your fish out. I I don't know how practical that is. Um, you could if you have a, a suitable site bury it partially, and that would be good from a standpoint of maintaining a constant temperature. But there's another issue I have. If you live in a cold climate and you put it in a fully shaded area, it It's going to freeze a lot in the winter and might turn into a giant ice cube. I'm not sure, right, unless you had it buried. And if you put it where it gets a lot of sun on it in the summer, it's going to get very, very hot and bake. So I, I, I don't know that it's ideal. The system I recently built is about 1,300 gallons, and I have about 1,500 bucks into it. So it's less... And it costs more in some ways. But I think it's infinitely more practical. And that's the system I built using 4x4s. It's about three and a half foot tall. And it's about you know maybe a half foot into the ground. Uh, if you live somewhere where you can dig a hole, you can certainly go a couple feet in the ground and a couple feet up. And maybe even go you know three feet up and two feet down. 
And now you're at five foot of depth on an eight by eight tank, and it probably won't cost that much more. It probably will cost about the same as what I paid. Um, eight by eight by five, uh, I plugged that into a pond volume calculator, um, and that's 2,400 gallons. You're only 100 gallons off, and you're not going to completely fill that poly tank. So I think you could build uh, a timber frame pond using an EDPM liner with two feet of it into the ground with a five foot of depth for around 1500 bucks, maybe less. You know, if you look at my project and figure out how to cut some costs on it and things like that, and uh, I think it'd be infinitely more practical. Two foot of below grade is going to do a lot to help with thermal control. Um, it's a lot easier to access. It's a lot more practical. It's a lot better looking. And, you know, you say it's 800 bucks, but generally you don't throw a 2,500-gallon tank in the back of a pickup truck. You got 100 bucks or so or more for delivery. And then you got to, all the stuff you got to do to plumb it and all that. I'm talking 1,500 bucks, like all in. Everything is about what I'm in on it. So I, I personally think what I built is more practical. Um, the next aquatics project I'm going to do, I am probably going to use eight foot round, two foot deep stock tanks, the poly ones instead of the metal ones. I found a source of them that are like a light gray color, so I don't the ones I've always seen that are poly are like bright blue and they look like crap. These light gray ones, I think they'll they'll kind of blend in and I'll probably bury them at least a foot in the ground or at least hilled up a foot around them to create that thermal blanket, you know, that thermal uh, mediation effect because water temperature is so critical here. So I, I think like either one of those would probably be better. And then, you know, you look at mine and it's eight foot by eight foot. Well, you could easily make one that's eight foot wide by 16 foot long by doubling your, your, your long, long courses. And if you use, good, you know, good galvanized spikes or something, or uh, a gentleman mentioned some really tough, uh, I think, a four-inch uh, screws uh, that would have saved me money, and I have to check those out and see if they would work. But there is a lot of weight there, but you're distributing across the hole. Um, you know, if you look at what a above ground what holds an above ground pool together that's holding 20,000 gallons of water, it's thin ass aluminum. So I, I think you'd have plenty of structural integrity here. All of those options, while being a little bit more expensive, seem like a lot more practical. If I was going to go with anything, I just wanted to be, you know, just hook it up and be done. Man, IBCs, IBCs, because you can get if you shop around, you can get food grade. IBCs for a hundred bucks, and you know, like 300 gallons a pop. So ten of those is a thousand dollars, and then each one has its own little world, you know, your own little colony. And you can start with three, and you can expand. And is this really something you want to do? Now, the last thing is, Richard Hastings is growing tens of thousands of head of lettuce, tens of thousands of heads of lettuce a month. From 2,000 gallons. If you just want to grow fish, that's different. But if you're going to do aquaponics, I think when you start talking numbers like 2,000 gallons, the grow bed that you need, you really need to understand what you're getting into. You really do. So check out his channel. I think it'll help. And uh, you can just look up his name on the Survival Podcast website if you want to hear the episode I did with him talking all about how he set his aquaponics up as a commercial aquaponics producer. Okay, next one comes from Dustin. Dustin says, uh, I have a domain name that I had a podcast idea for. Did you know how doc? Did you know show.com? I love obscure factors, history, etc., and bug my wife with these things and thought I should monetize it. 
A guy emailed me asking to buy it for one to two k out of the blue. Best I can figure, he and his wife run a site or Facebook page. Uh, have it all, mom, and sell keeping in shape, keep sane mommy packages for workouts, diets, etc. Only has twenty two thousand followers. How do I know what a domain is worth to sell if I decide to do it? I have other ideas for the show name that work, but not as well. But I think he wants it bad enough for an initial one or two k offer, and he'd be willing to go higher, maybe two and a half k. What's your gut reaction? Okay, so first of all, unless I have a domain name like passion.com, right, or or love.com, or I don't know, dog.com, or something that's really, really high value, if somebody, you know, if you want to buy a domain name that I have that's a four-word domain, um, and you want to give me a couple thousand bucks for it, you just bought yourself a domain. Uh, I, this made me think back, Neil Franklin, when I was working with him, he would come up with an idea a week minimum. And he'd say, go get this domain, mate, we need to get this, you know, and like, and we're going to get a site up, and you know, and it was just like so, he was like the guy that you take fishing, that you're like, this is a really good spot, he wants to move before you got the line in the water. So we ended up with this whole ass load of domains. And one one day, I got an email from a guy, and he wanted to give us three grand for it. And I went to Neil, I said, we should sell it. He goes, we're going to do something with that. I'm like... You, you can come up with another name. So we sold it. I don't even remember what it was now. It tells you how unattached to it we were. But we got three grand for it. I think we had paid nine bucks a year for the domain fee. And we had two years. So we had 18 bucks in it. We got, we got three grand for it. We, we took 1500 bucks each. Boom. Right? And uh, had 1500 bucks each. And I remember there was, I, I, like, which I checked on the domain a couple times. And there was this clock, like, counting down to when it was coming. And then nothing ever happened. So I paid three thousand for this domain. Nothing ever happened. And then I checked one day, and there was a GoDaddy, you know, for sale. Um, like you can buy this domain, you know, get this domain or whatever. And it was like not even expensive at that point. Like I could have bought it for what I originally bought. I could have bought it back, and I didn't care enough to. So we get really emotional over these things. So if somebody wants to give me two grand for a domain, I got ten bucks into. Again, unless. Unless it's the only thing that'll do something, and I really know I'm going to do that thing, you can have it. I'll publish a list of shit that I own if you guys want to buy domains for me for two grand. What's it worth? It's worth whatever somebody will pay for it. My instinct is if you shop that domain name out, um, the only guy that would probably bid on it would be him. So if he says for one to two K... I'd say, you know, I'll do it for $2,200. He says, two sizes I can go. It's sold. Get in the domain. That's my gut. Put $2,000 in your pocket. You know, you just made more money than that domain is likely to ever make you because you bought it and you still haven't done anything with it. If you ever want to do this kind of variety show or what have you, you can call it something else. Lots of other things. It's, it's not like this domain is... So awesome that like it's the like the thing or like it has extreme long term value like it's worth squatting on. You know, if I had the domain, you know, love.com, I promise you, there would be a bidding war before that thing went away. But those days of being able to grab those I mean they're, they're gone. They're gone. And every time a new domain extension comes out, people think, Well, I'll go buy all these no one cares. No one cares. Right? Because They'll just go buy if they're willing to get the dot biz. They'll take the dot net or the dot whatever you know. Um, so I'd sell it. Determine what it's worth. Ask him for more, and whatever he comes back to, that's what it's worth to him. And unless somebody else is willing to pay for it, then um, you know 
you, you, you don't really have anybody else to sell it to, and it's worth what that one person thinks it's subjectively worth. And it's probably a bad buy for them. They could probably go find a better domain name for what they're doing for ten bucks. But if they want to give you two grand, take their two grand and do something good with it. Last one today. This one comes from Brian. Brian says, Jack, do you think the death of malls could be a market opportunity for entrepreneurs with the idea of using space to create urban indoor farms? Details. This weekend I was thinking about what the death of shopping malls means to local economies and thought, what if a space was converted into an urban indoor farm? The idea came from me watching YouTube videos where warehouses are converted into growing indoor crops. The mall space could retain many of the smaller shops where the greens could be sold in an open-air market and a big retail magnet stores can be converted into growing spaces. These smaller spaces could be leased by vendors and resellers that would buy from others in the magnet stores um, for those that only wanted to grow and not sell retail. To offset energy costs, I thought we could cover the roofs of these malls with solar panels. Also, most malls located where there are large population centers, so you have building customer base of restaurants and subdivision suburban residences. I don't like including government, but this seems like it would lend itself to getting some really great local tax breaks from government, as well as possible government grants, maybe even through NRCS. I don't think NRCS would do that because it doesn't actually affect the soil, but I'm just saying. Uh, what do you think? Maybe a possible Kickstarter Indiegogo campaign to fund uh, when the mall starts shutting down. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Uh, maybe, probably not exactly that way, but the overall answer is yes, but not necessarily the way you're envisioning it. I mean, as per our earlier discussion on the solar industry, I think the concept of putting solar panels on anything to save money right now is a negative cash flow uh, situation, which is not something you can really afford going into a new business. Yeah, if you can involve the government and they pay for it or something stupid like that, I guess. But the two most expensive things we do with energy is heat and cool. Okay? So... Um, malls are incredibly expensive to operate. They really are. That's part of why they're dying. That's part of why things always costed more there. But they survived because they were places for people to hang out. And once you got into them, you bought this and you bought that. And you, you went to the food court and all these other things. And all of that together made it work. So people had you know, endless options at the mall. About the only thing that you didn't generally buy at the mall was food other than the food court or candy or something. It was not a place you went for groceries. So what you're actually talking about is turning the mall into a giant farmer's market mall. I can see some appeal to this. Having been to farmer's markets and, and, and just thought, I would love to be here longer, but I am sweating my brains out and I'm covered in sweat and I have sweat running down my face and down my neck <clears throat> and I, I'm leaving. Um, <clears throat> if somebody had taken a mall and had a farmer's market in a place where when it rained, it was dry, when it was hot, it was cool, when it was cold, it was warm, um, I would have spent more time and probably more money there. But it's, it's a relatively low dollar per transaction situation. So I don't think economically this is viable. It might be in certain cherry-picked things with generally smaller malls. When we were in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, they had a mall there, and I use that term very, very loosely, uh, relatively small, and it was still probably a little bit bigger than would work for this model. In my hometown of Pottsville, there was a mall that had two anchor stores. One was like a low-end discount retailer called GB's. I don't even know if they exist anymore. The other one I'm pretty sure is still around. It was more of a high-end, like, like, a, like a regional Sears analog called Boscov's. 
And at Boss Cops, you can get everything from nice clothes to a gun and ammunition. All right? And then they had the little stores in the middle. And it was probably at most, at most, five minutes to walk from the door of Boscov's down to GB's. That size of an operation, you know, might. I use the, the might fit this model. But I, I think you'd have to do other things. Let me tell you about a successful mall recovery project that, that then died due to fire. So... There was this mall in Grand Prairie, Texas. I don't remember what it was called, but when I first moved to Grand Prairie when I worked for Lockheed, it was still a mall. And it had it was a it was clearly a dying mall. And this is 25 years ago this mall was dying. 30 years ago this mall. Jesus, 30 years almost. No, 25. So, you know, I go to this mall just to look around, and I lived in the area and I didn't have a lot of money back then. So, you know, a mall is cool in the summer, you can walk around and so every once in a while I'd go in the mall, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. I'd been there about a year. And I'm like, yeah, I'll stop by the mall. So I pull into the mall, and I realize there's no mall. It was like um, a flea market inside the mall. There were ta It was like, a, like an antique store, but it was more like flea market-y stuff. And there were probably 200 vendors in there with their little spaces and stuff like that. And some of them were occupied, and some were like a typical antique mall where there was the thing, and if you found something in their booth, you could take it to the front and then pay for it at one central location, and that way people could run their little booth without actually being there. And that went on for a while. And there was a one big anchor store, and I don't remember what it was. Let's say it was a Sears, but I don't think it was. Well, one day I'm driving by this mall, And it's like a Saturday night. I was going to a, a nightclub called Cowboys. It's actually where I met my wife and just maybe a mile from where the small was. And there's cars everywhere. I mean, this, I ne I'd never seen this mall with this many cars in it. And there's lights going and shit. I'm like, what is going on? Somebody put a Tejano club in there. Like a Mexican music disco. And Grand Prairie, Texas has a huge population of Hispanics. And that place probably made more money from that nightclub than they ever did from anything else it ever did. And I think some people got drunk one night and got angry and burned the place to the ground and it took care of the flea market and the whole thing. But that's like one, like the only time I've seen a mall resurrected involved dancing and booze. I, I think that the mall structure, unless you find the cherry-picked one, doesn't lend itself to this. That said... This is not the death of malls. It's the death of retails. Now, could someone capitalize on a very underpriced retail space and pull this off? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're looking at a smaller thing. A, you know, a strip mall that's completely vacated. You just blow down the walls and open it up. That type of thing, I, I think that maybe you could start to get these niche businesses that, that like, because you, you can't order fresh microgreens from Amazon. And I just don't think you're going to be able to anytime soon. I don't care what they do with Amazon Fresh. Certain things don't make that transition very well. And people want to buy from the guy that grew the stuff and things like that, at least for the next, I, I don't know, foreseeable several decades or more. So I think that may, maybe it's that type of thing. I don't know what it is, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for creative entrepreneurs to capitalize on low-cost, formerly expensive retail space. Because there's going to come a point where the owner's either going to sell it cheap or lease it cheap. 
because they're paying taxes on it. And there's going to come a point where the city's going to make some kind of deal because they'd rather have some tax revenue from it than none because the property owner's just going to go, go ahead and auction it. I don't give a shit. I don't care. And maybe that's the case. So I think that there's going to be an opportunity to scoop up these retail establishments, the, the, the buildings, in you know a lot of cities and towns. However, I will tell you this. The cities and towns have figured this out, and they are not sitting back and doing nothing about it already. What a lot of cities have already done is this. For the businesses that are still viable and building new businesses. It used to be what you would say is, well, we're moving our store, so we're just going to abandon this building. And it's the landowner's problem. And what they're doing now is they're saying, if you can't put somebody in that building in a certain time frame, then you and the landlord, if you want the occupancy permit for the new building, need to see to the demolition of the old one. We'd rather have it not be there and be a vacant lot than an empty building. And that's starting to happen a lot more. So... Um, There's still going to be shitloads of them. I, I can tell you that during the... I, and I, I, I called it when it was going on. The commercial building boom, like 2012 is when it really started. They were building strip malls all over these growth areas in, in Texas. And even places where the growth has continued in population, there's just so much shit, they can't fill them. I can show you brand new, down in Arlington, brand new strip malls, you know, 10... Ten uh, built one building with ten you know subdivisions in it, brand new painted, never had but one person in it. You know, one of the ten was leased for a year and it went out of business. There's so many options and, and stuff like that. You know, maybe maybe your idea, maybe something else. But there's gonna be opportunities for people that need a structure to get them for a fraction of what it costs to put them in. The key is to be able to format it in a way where either you have the capital or you can raise the capital. And I don't like Kickstarter for this at all. I, I, if you can't get, if you can't go make a solid business case to actual investors that invest for a return on what your idea is in one of these things, it's probably not going to work. It's pro and I wouldn't want to do it, right? Like I'm not in the buildings business because that's inventory and upkeep and overhead and whatever. But for those that do, yeah, there's there's opportunity there. It's just you gotta you gotta run the business case scenarios. Like you know, this sounds great, but how much lettuce do you have to sell to pay for a mall? And the answer is you can't sell enough lettuce to pay for a mall. Now, they legalize marijuana, you turn it into a giant marijuana mall. That might be economically viable, uh, but the contact high you'd get from going in there would probably prohibit you from even needing to spend any money. Just a thought on that. Well, that wraps up our segments for today. I wanted to uh, real quick uh, tell you about my YouTube channel today for you to check out. This is a channel I've been watching forever. I've been watching this channel for so long. I was watching this channel before I started doing TSP. The guy's still around. He's still putting video out regularly. He comes off as kind of a goober. But he really knows what he's doing, and the fact that he's not dead yet, and that he has most of his fingers, tells you he knows what he's doing. The channel's called the Viper Keeper, Keeper Channel. And this is dude, in, I think he's in Tennessee. He has one of the most amazing collections of venomous snakes in private hands in the country. And he talks to his snakes, and he plays with them. And not, not play is the wrong word, because um, this guy is the first guy to tell you they're not pets. 
There's no such thing as a, as a, as a safe venomous snake. And some of the stuff he has is routine, and some is very, very exotic. Gaboon vipers, Russell's vipers, things like that. And uh, it's entertaining. It's entertaining to watch. Uh, and just the sheer variety, what he has, the number of videos, what have you. And he does come off like a bit of a goober, but I want to stick up for him since I've said that. When you're working with animals that can kill you with a bite, You use whatever works to keep the energy right. And if that's what works, that's what works. And you'll see what I mean when you watch it. Guy really knows what he's doing, though, man. You know, he's the guy that you look at, you think, this guy's going to be dead. And then you look at how long his channel's been around, you go, this guy knows what he's doing. And I think if you, if you like seeing real shit, these are not set up videos. Like, you know, like, you know, somebody's writing a script out for or whatever. This is, this is, this is what reality would be if reality was actually on TV. Really cool channel. Again, the guy's name is Viper Keeper. And I have a link uh, to his channel in today's show notes. Remember, if you want to submit a YouTube channel for me to possibly feature uh, like this, you can send me an email with TSPC YouTube in the subject line. Tell me a little bit about the channel. If it's your channel or a channel of a person you're trying to help out, I have a hard limit that I've come up with. They have to have at least 1,000 subscribers. And at that point, I'll consider them for this segment. Anyway, um, next up, uh, let me tell you about the item of the day today. This is an item that I just found that I'm, I'm kind of stoked about it because I hate timers. Yep, I think timers are the greatest thing on planet Earth. Turn lights on and off or your aquaponic system on and off or whatever. The reason I hate them is they're always a pain in the ass. And I came up with a unique situation. I, I, I had a catastrophe in my, my in-ground pond and I lost a ton of fish. And I made the decision that I had to get a good aeration system. And I bought like a $600 badass aeration system. It uses a one-quarter horsepower compressor and it pushes air through a diaphragm bladder and it's just beautiful oxygen. Wish I would have bought it before I had the problem. And it runs through 100 feet of weighted uh, tubing. So the compressor is sitting in my duck house about 100 feet away from the pond. And the diaphragm sitting down in the pond, almost in the middle of it, running bubbles. And that keeps the compressor up by the ducks, and it's in the duck house, and it's not going to get rained on, and it's a good place. For I mean, that worked out perfectly. Here's the thing. I don't want that compressor running... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's going to overheat, and it's going to not last very long if you do that in our, our climate. Um, the other thing is I did want it kind of running throughout the day. So I wanted a timer that I could set to run like 15 minutes out of every hour. Here's the other thing. I didn't want a digital timer. The reason I didn't want a digital timer is not that I'm against digital. It's that my duck house has an electrical outlet, and that electrical outlet has plugged into it, among other things, my fence charger to electrocute creatures that try to eat my ducks. Okay, that makes sense. So we put a switch outside the fence. That you can throw that switch, it shuts all that power off, so that when we go to let the ducks out, there's like four different doors, and my wife can get zapped, and the kids can get zapped, and all. And we don't need it on during the day. So you just kill that master switch. That shuts the power off. Then you can disconnect the, the quick connects on the, the gates, and I'll open the gate and let the ducks out. No one gets zapped. Okay, fine. It's fine until you need to use the power for other things. Well, now we use the power for the deal. So if there's a digital timer in there, I shut that power off in the morning, the timer's going to start blinking and need to be reset all over again every morning. So you use a mechanical timer that's like a turning mechanical timer, then pff, no problem. So that was the solution. 
So my buddy David tells me, well, they have these timers that you can set for 15 minutes out of every hour that are mechanical timers. So I start looking for them. And my big thing is I hate timers. I'll tell you, there's a link in today's review. It says the only thing I hate more than timers is networked printers. And uh, there's a, a link for the, uh, the beatdown scene from Office Space. If you check it out, it's not, work not workspace friendly, okay, for most workspaces anyway, because of the rap music playing while they're beating this printer down. But that's how I feel about printers. I almost feel that bad about timers. This thing's so simple. It's $10. Bucks. Plug it in the wall. Plug your device. You're going to control it. Every hour on the dial has four little pins. If you push them down, it equals on. If you leave them up, it equals off. So if you wanted it on from 1 to 2 o'clock, you push the four pins in the one hour from 1 to 2 o'clock p.m. You push those four pins down, it'll run for that hour, and it won't run the rest of the time. Or if you're like me and you want it to run for 15 minutes every hour, push the first pin in every hour down, and every 15 minutes it'll run for now. Here's the good thing. When you unplug it and it's not the timer's not running, doesn't matter for me. I don't care what time. I just want it to go 15 minutes every, every 60. So it works for that. But so easy to use. It's like bulletproof, stupid, easy. It is made by a company called Sentry. It's Sentry 24-hour mechanical timer. This, like, I don't understand why all mechanical timers aren't made this way. You can set up any frequency you want as long as you're willing to work in 15-minute blocks. If you wanted to run it like a constant flow aquaponics system where you wanted it to run two hours on and one hour off, Push all the pins down for two hours, leave them up for one. Push them down for two, leave them up for one. Plug it in, plug it in, boom. Again, at that point, you don't even care what time it's set to. But to set the time, you just turn it. There's a little arrow, and you turn it to where, like, oh, it's five after two right there. Boom, done. Awesome. Check it out. It'll make your day better. Automation makes our days better. Often the only big problem with automation is setting it up. In this case, setting it up is easy. Brings us to our song of the day. Uh, John Adam picked a great song. I think that everybody out there that's listen, that listened to music, you know, more than 20 years ago, or, or more really, would would know this song. Awesome classic rock song, one of the most popular of all time. Not a big bunch of deep meaning and stuff like that in it, but uh, it's from Boston, man. More than a feeling. More than a feeling. It's like everybody's you're, you're already hearing that song in your head, aren't you? Because it's such a well-known song. I wanted to tell you something about that song that a lot of people, I don't think, know. That song was actually the number one debut album, you know, debut album with a lead song on it for a long time. In fact, it was, um, it was, who was it? It was Guns N' Roses, that's right, Guns N' Roses, so, um, More Than a Feeling came out in 76, and the album that it was on was their... So the first you know, major release album Boston ever did sold 17 million albums. 17 million for a debut album. And that became the number one debut, debut album until 2008 when Guns N' Roses released Appetite for Destruction and had 18 million sales. That's a long time to be the industry's number one selling debut album. And I think it's because the song just sounds so good. Now, the, the genesis of this song, um, it was written by uh, the leader of uh, uh, Boston, Tom Skoltz. He said he was inspired by the heart-tugging mood of Left Bank's 1967 song, Walk Away Renee. He worked on the song for five years in his basement studio before it was released on the album. And uh, 
It, it is a classic song. I also think it's one of those songs that a lot of people like. That a lot of people don't even know, like some of the lines in it. Like has those lines that kind of trail off. There's the one part in kind of the chorus where he says at the end, he says, "Till I see Marianne walk away, I see my Marianne walking away." And I think most people they they get the second one, but they I think it's one of those songs where like, "And I begin dreaming more than a feeling." Blah 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 blah. I see my Marianne. Like, I think that's a lot of people don't even know that line, um, but. I guess if there is an expanded meaning to this song for me personally, is that music can take you to a place, a smell can take you to a place, and I think that's a, a, a thing that makes us innately human. That those certain things anchor us. So in the song, he begins dreaming on this song, and it's all beautiful until he sees this love of his life walking away. That's also connected to the song. But I can tell you right now that when I go out and I work in my, my aquaponics area and I move the tomatoes around and I smell that smell that tomato plants make, I never fail to think about myself being 12 years old in my grandfather's garden and think about what it looked like. There's certain songs I remember like certain parts of my military career or my life or certain smells or certain foods or things like that. And I think that, that music is truly one of the things that we express as human beings. That many times, and it's like one of the few things, like we can all agree that we like a song. We can all agree that a song's awesome. Like, no, we won't always do that, but we can. We can have a song that everybody loves, but it means something different to everybody, and everybody's actually okay with that. <laughs> it's pretty cool. That's what this song is about to me, and it just kicks ass as well. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
said, forget the day and dream of a girl I used to know.